Good things taking place here. We like to think it's because the Lord Jesus has captivated our hearts. And therefore, those who serve in these manifold capacities do so because our desire is to glorify him. And why not? Look what he's done for us. We've been reading about it in John's gospel. In fact, we've been reading about the events characterized by the last few days of his life. It's very fascinating to see how he spent it. We're moving to the grand conclusion, which is the cross on which he was crucified. Last week, one of the events we read about, and we were so puzzled by it, was Jewish unbelief in the face, as the text said, of many and diverse works and miracles and wonders which the Lord performed. And so most of the Jewish non-believers who rejected him were eyewitnesses to these diverse manifestations of his supernatural power. And we were so perplexed because we couldn't explain Jewish unbelief. Now, by way of contrast, we read this. We're in John chapter 12, verse 42. John 12, verse 42. We'll look at just a few verses tonight. Look what it says. Nevertheless, so there were many who didn't believe, but nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Now, we don't want to underestimate what that would mean. The Pharisees were power brokers, and if they didn't like what you stood for or who you believed in, and if they put you out of the synagogue, that meant more than you just have to relocate and find another place of worship. It meant it's over for you. You would be jobless and homeless. The whole community would be instructed to turn against you. You would be excommunicated. So this is a weighty thing. And the text says even those in high places, the rulers, were so intimidated by the Pharisees that though they, in some sense, believed in the Lord, yet they couldn't bring themselves to confess him publicly because of fear of the Pharisees. Now, uh, we know of two of these rulers who came to know the Lord. One is named Nicodemus, and the other, Joseph of Arimathea. We will read about them if we ever get to John chapter 19. I, for one, don't have that much faith. Surely, we're not going to get, we're only in chapter 12. Are you kidding me? That's seven chapters away. Um, that's not going to happen, is it? We'll be like 104 years old, the youngest among us by the time we get there. But anyway, John 19 is a preview. Listen, it mentions these two uh, governmental leaders who came to know the Lord. After these things, here, we, here he is, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus. See, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, yet a disciple of Jesus. But it says, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus, here's the second believer, who had first come to him by night. Do you remember this way back in John? Also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 100 pounds of weight for those spices. So here are some of the ruling class who believed in the Lord Jesus and they and others like them, verse 42 tells us, believed in him 
and yet they didn't confess him. Now, I should tell you that there's some difference of opinion, and some would say that these who believed in him really didn't truly believe in him. They believed in a sense, and maybe they'll become fully saved later, but at this point, they'll say, no, their belief system was kind of superficial and shallow. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I do know this. You could be a full-fledged, authentic, true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and yet still quite reluctant to publicly identify with him. I know you might say, how could it be that Jesus would save you and fill you with his Holy Spirit and you would be reluctant to let people know about it? Well, I, I'm telling you, it happens. In fact, some of you may be, may be squirming a little bit a little bit now. It just that's just, that's just the case. And then you might say, why might this be? Well, the answer is supplied for us in the very next verse, verse 43. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now, here's a wonderful, stirring quotation by R.C. Sproul, who's now with the Lord. The greatest weakness in the church, said he, today is that the servants of God keep looking over their shoulder for the approval of men. It's a real problem. It's like an addiction. You could get hooked on it. I have succumbed to it. I'm uh, ashamed to say many times in my Christian life. I think I've shared this one with you. It'll help me if I can get it out again. It's like therapy. I was, uh, I was a counselor in a military mental health clinic many years ago. And there was a staff like there would be in any mental health clinic. There were therapists and social workers and, and psychiatrists. And the head psychiatrist invited us as a staff to his home. Now, the fellow who led me to the Lord also worked in that hospital, hospital in a different department. And he was invited also. We were, we were single guys in that day. And so we went to the psychiatrist's house. He was a man of high esteem and uh, superior rank to us and we went there and it was a big beautiful house and his wife welcomed us in and there were all kinds of people I thought I'd never get to rub elbows with my beginnings were much more humble than that and there were a lot of hotsy totsy upper crust people there and I must tell you I was loving every minute of it I was just just enamored this is just really great look at look at the height to which I have ascended well, then my friend who led me to the Lord is engaged in conversation with a few folks. They were all drinking, and we were sipping on soda and stuff like that. We didn't blow our testimony or anything like that. And, but, and, and somehow, he was a master at turning the conversation towards vital spiritual things instead of the small talk this hotsy totsy group was engaged in. Well, I saw where it was going. I knew how he operated because he was discipling me and teaching me how to do the same. But I remember thinking, oh, man, does he have to bring him up now? I mean, we're having a good time here. Look at this. You know, we're hanging out with these people. And, and uh, I thought, you know, uh, if this goes on and they get offended, I may not get invited back to this guy's house again, and I won't be able to hang out with these people. And so I backed away from the conversation and went to another room and departed to let my friend kind of hang by himself. He was talking about the very God who saved me. 
and who I claimed to worship. And there I was, I was kind of doing the uh, Michael Jackson moonwalk thing, you know what I mean? To back out of the whole deal. Well, that was decades ago, but I remember it like it was yesterday. Well, there I was, fully saved and converted, and yet not willing to publicly identify with Christ. Why? Well, this verse haunts me, verse 43. Here's the simple explanation. Because I loved the approval of those people more than I did the approval of God. That's the way, that's the way it is. Now, the approval of people is not a bad thing unless you opt for it in place of the approval of God. Now, the good news is sometimes you can have both. You can live the Christian life in such fashion that you have both the approval of people and the approval of God. But that's not always the case, and you and I have to decide which are we going to choose. Now, the approval of people is very uh, pleasant. As I said earlier, it's very addicting. You can develop a, a taste for it so that it becomes... Well, it's quite habit-forming, but if you think about it, the approval of people has a shelf life. It's only a value here, but the approval of God is a value here and there. So it just makes sense to try to live. It's an effort. I don't have victory over it, but I'm better at it than I used to be. It makes sense to be asking yourself, who am I trying to please? Who am I dancing for? Well, that's a bad illustration isn't it, here in a Baptist church? Never mind. Forget I said that. Who am I living for? Who am I living for? I, I, I heard a song one time, I'll never forget, and the title is An Audience of One. An Audience of One. What we do, we do for the audience of one because his approval matters most, and his approval can become habit-forming as well. Well, at this point, these believers knew if truly believers at all, were not at that point, and so they were reluctant to publicly confess Christ because they valued the approval of men. And then it occurred to me, when you do that, it's kind of a form of idolatry. Tell me if I'm being too harsh here. And I get this from Romans chapter 1, verse 25. Look what it says. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen, the text says. Paul is writing that. So when we're stuck on the approval of men and when that compulsion causes us to compromise our walk with Christ, even our public identification with him, then we become idolaters because we're worshiping the creature, you see, rather than the creator. Well, I don't want to do that. I know you don't want to either. So it's just something to be aware of and work on. Now, here's what the Lord Jesus says in this context. Verse 44, Jesus cried out, cried out, didn't whisper, cried out and said, he who believes in me does not believe in me. I think I could substitute the word alone. Does not believe in me alone, but in him also who sent me. Now, though the people, even though those who were told believed in him, though they lacked the courage to openly confess Christ, he, the Christ, had the courage to openly proclaim what he did here. He didn't whisper, speak with a small voice and uh, uh, softly. The text says Jesus cried out and said, and so he spoke, he declared, he shouted out these words loudly. Why? Because they're critical what are the words? It's about believing in him. Everything hinges on that. 
Everything pertaining to salvation has to do belief with belief, faith, confidence in the right object, Jesus Christ. He who believe doesn't say they, he, she belief in Christ has to be personal. It can't, can't be collective. It, can't, it has to be individual and personal. He who believes in me, and the belief has to be in Jesus. It can't be generic faith. I believe one day maybe I'll go to heaven or whatever. I believe things will work out. You know, that's just odd, generic faith. No, faith that saves has a very specific object, has to be personal. He has to, or she, has to place his or her faith. The object is a person, Jesus. He who believes, what is it to have to believe in Jesus? It's not complicated. It means to be confident that what he said, he will do. That's what it means. He said, come to me, I'll save you. That's what he said. He said, believe in me and I'll forgive your sins. I'll cast them behind my back. I'll grant you access into heaven. He said, believe in me and I'll, ad- I'll be the bridge by which you can be adopted into my father's family. If they believe in me, and we can pray our Father. The relationship I have with transcendent deity, you can have. To believe in Jesus is to take him up at his word. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you will be redeemed and saved. Don't make this too mysterious. To believe in Jesus is to put confidence in the words of Jesus. This is essential. So he shouted it out. It's in Jerusalem. It's during Passover. The streets are flooded with pilgrims. He's not playing it carefully at all. Look at the risk he's taking. Well, he knows what's before him. He knows soon he'll be taken and imprisoned and crucified. And he has to get this out because he loves even the very ones who are about to turn against him. And so Jesus said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me, which leads to the question, well, which is it? Are we to believe in Jesus or are we to believe in God? And here's the answer. Yes. Why? Because as Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now, let me explain that to you. Are you kidding? Nobody can. (laughs) I have no explanation for the unity and yet differentiation in the Trinity. We don't worship three gods or two gods. We worship the one true God who's manifested himself in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I've yet to meet anyone who can explain it. The best we can do is draw analogies to it. But that doesn't explain the complexity of the Trinity. Uh, It's also known as the Godhead. I don't know how it works. Could I tell you something? It doesn't bother me at all that I don't have that figured out. Are you kidding? It moves me to sing the songs we sang earlier. It moves me to worship God. Now, why would I worship someone I fully understand? I want to worship a God who is incomprehensible. He's not a peer. He's the great beyond. He's the infinite deity. We're his finite creatures. I don't expect to fully comprehend him. That's the basis, not for confusion, but of worship. So I don't understand how Jesus and the Father are different, and yet they are one, but they is. (laughs) And Jesus essentially is saying, if you believe in me, you believe in the Father, because behind me stands 
God the Father. He who believes in Jesus as God's beloved and sent Son also believes in God the Father who sent him. Furthermore, the Lord says in verse 45, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. You can't know God unless he reveals himself. Did you know that? You can only speculate about what God is like. You could guess. If God doesn't reveal himself, you can never know him. You can't get in your own strength to where he is. You can't apprehend him with eyes, thoughts. You can't lay your hands on him, wrap your arms around him. He has to take the initiative in disclosing himself to us. This he did. Do you remember John chapter 1, verse 18? No one has seen God at any time. Nobody. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The only begotten, that's Jesus. Jesus revealed God. In other words, the visible God, Jesus, has displayed for us the invisible God, God the Father. If he didn't do that, we couldn't know who he is. John 1.18 says, Jesus explained him. Listen, this is not a Greek class, and I'm not trying to impress you, but, but I think you'll like this. That word explained is the word, have you heard this word exegesis? Exegesis is kind of a fancy Greek word. Ex, like exit, out of. Uh, uh, and what it means to lift out of the Bible its meaning. That's what you want, an exegete. The other word is eisegesis. It's the opposite. That means to read into Bible, into the Bible, stuff that ain't there. You don't want eisegesis. You want exegesis. You want the meaning to emerge up and out of the Scripture. That very word. You want the Scriptures to be explained. That very word is used of Jesus. He exegeted the unseen God. The visible God, Jesus, exegeted explained, revealed, manifested, put on display the unseen God. That's what it says. Furthermore, Colossians 1 verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. No, folks, we don't worship two gods, nor do we have two objects of our faith the one true God has been manifested through God the Son. So without the one we see, there's no way we could see the one we do not see. Does that make sense? Without the God we see, Jesus, there's no way we could see God the Father who we do not see. And so here's an answer to a very important question, I think. First of all, here's the question. I wish everyone in the world would ask it. It's this. What is God really like? I wish people were intent on answering that question. I wish everyone was on a quest to figure out what is God really like? And here's the plain and simple answer, it seems to me. God is like Jesus. There's the answer. In the one, you see the other. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, get this, in the face of Christ. 
When you behold Jesus, you behold the unseen God. Now, connected with this truth and this light image, I think the Lord says this. It goes on to say this in verse 46. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. The light, that's Jesus, came into the world to drive the darkness away, to dispel the darkness. Light and darkness cannot occupy the same space. And folks, darkness is the state in which we, apart from Christ, lived. I don't want to um, insult anybody, but apart from Jesus, who is the light, we're dwelling in darkness. The world is in darkness, and that explains the news. That explains the upsetting current events. The world is in darkness. Jesus came to deliver us from it. Jesus, the light of the world, came to pull us out of the darkness. Now, to accomplish this, two things have to happen. One, he, the light, had to come. Two, he, the light, has to be invited to come in to our otherwise darkened hearts. That's how it works. He had to come, and he has to be accepted and received. How else can he pierce the darkness of our hearts if we don't allow him? He will not force himself upon us. Now, Jesus came to lead us out of Satan's kingdom of darkness. If Jesus is the source of the light, Satan is the prince of darkness. And so we read this a long time ago in John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Folks, the moment, at the moment of faith, at the moment when a person accepts Christ, that one immediately at that moment becomes a child of the light. Now, that does not mean that child of the light ceases to sin. In fact, sadly, that one who is a child of the light, having become one instantaneously, upon allowing Jesus, the light of the world, to come in, sadly, that one can drift back into the darkness and can engage in deeds of darkness, sadly. We've seen it amongst believers. It's a very sad yet real thing that sometimes happens. But even for that one, that child of the light, who has been tempted to engage in deeds of darkness again, that one is never ever again under the domain of darkness. That one is a child of the light. Now that's why a Christian who sins is the most unhappy person on earth. You can't do it the way you used to do it. You used to sin and get away with it and enjoy it all the more. You were rarely guilty or disturbed by it. You had nothing, no one inside of you to disturb you about it. You sinned all the more. Sin gave pleasure. Our design in life, sadly, is to seek pleasure and avoid pain. You kept sinning. But now, when you accept Christ at that point of uh, faith... 
Jesus, the light of the world, enlightened you, sent his spirit to live within you, and now you can no longer sin as freely. You can still sin. I know this, but it disturbs you now. That's why I say the most miserable person on earth is not an unsaved person. They don't even know how desperate their situation is yet. They're having a pretty good time, generally. It's a Christian who's miserable because the Christian has been enlightened and now has wandered back into the darkness, never as a domain which he is now captivated by for the Lord of light has removed us from that domain, but that's why it's so crazy for a child of the light to engage anymore in the deeds of darkness, but it's possible. And now the Lord says in verse 47, if anyone hears my sayings and doesn't keep them, I do not judge them. For I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now I have to tell you, this statement sounds like it is contrary to this statement in John 9, 39. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world. So verse 47 of John 12 says, in it, Jesus says, I didn't come to judge. But in John 9, he said, for judgment I did come. So which is it? Is there a contradiction? No, not at all. What the Lord is saying here is that the primary mission for which he came into this world the first time was not judgment, it was salvation. You know, we sang one of these great songs earlier, which I never heard before, and talked about the lion and the lamb. Both are attributes of Jesus. But first, he came as the lamb to suffer and die. Second time, he'll come as the lion. You want to really know him as the lamb first, uh, lest you run into him as, as the lion. So, so what the Lord is saying is his primary reason for coming was not judgment. It was salvation. Judgment is the consequence of not responding to his salvation. But his primary purpose in coming the first time was to save and not to judge. So listen to John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Salvation is the Son's main objective. Judgment is the consequence of rejecting the Son. Now, I think I could persuade you that Jesus did not come into the world to judge it. If he wanted to judge the world, he would not have had to come here at all, and he would not have had to die here. He could just judge the world. But if his purpose was to save the world, that explains why he came here and died here. So can you see his primary thrust was to save, not to judge? Now, with regard to this, the Lord goes on to say in verse 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So there is a last day. There is a time of judgment. And the Lord is saying, I need not be the one who judges him. No, it's the word that I spoke under which he will sit in judgment. Now, what does this mean? It means there's such a close association between the written word of God and the incarnate word of God <laughs> that one 
substantiates, confirms, speaks of the other. So if one has heard in whole or in part the contents of the word of God, the gospel message, the way to be saved contained in scripture, and if that one rejects it, it's scripture which will judge that person. So let me put it this way. The word of God is either your judge or your savior, which will it will be? I didn't say the words. I don't mean the words on paper save. Jesus saves. But the words on paper are with such inerrancy, such authority, such inspiration, such correspondence to whom he is and why he came to reject the word of God, its message of salvation, is to make the word of God one day, in the last day, your judge instead of your, instead of your savior. On the last day, the written word of God will reject all those who have rejected the enfleshed son of God. I think that's what it's saying. Why? Verse 49 Jesus himself says, because I didn't speak on my own initiative. The words he spoke, the words inscripturated in the Bible are not of his own invention. He was not an independent agent. He came under the authority of God. I didn't speak on my own initiative, says he. The Father himself who sent me. He was a sent one. He was on a mission from the Father. He was authorized to speak those things the Father told him to speak. And so he says, he has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Therefore, to reject the words of Jesus is to bring condemnation upon oneself because Jesus didn't speak on his own. And here's what he spoke, verse 50. I know that his commandment, the commandment he received from the Father for us, I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. What Jesus said, in other words, was said with the fullest and highest authority. He was sent and he was authorized by the Father with a commandment for us. And what is the essence of the commandment? It's eternal life. We are commanded <laughs> to accept the source of, of eternal life. That's Jesus. Meaning, if we reject Jesus, the basis of our judgment is that we are rejecting the commandment of God to be saved by Jesus and have eternal life. God the Father sent God the Son with the authority and power to reveal eternal life and to bequeath it. Do you remember 1 John chapter 5? The same writer of this gospel wrote it. Listen, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 to 13. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The father sent the son on a mission and that is to have the authority to speak of and to bequeath eternal life. The commandment we are required to obey is the acceptance of Jesus, the bearer of eternal life. If we disobey that commandment, 
then we will forfeit the privilege of eternal life. So God, an eternal being, who made us in his own image, has designed us to be eternal as well. The only question is, where will you and I spend eternity? Upon death, our being doesn't end. We pass into eternity. And the question is, where will we spend it? As I read scripture, I think you will agree with me, there's only two options, heaven or hell. That's it. You know, it's a shame we have to sort of emphasize this, but there seems to be a growing movement amongst not pastors in our uh, circles yet, I'm glad to say, but pastors of notoriety in other denominations are coming out suggesting that the Bible does not substantiate the reality of hell, that God doesn't have such a place. Uh, uh, folks, I don't know what Bible they're reading. It's a different one than the Bible we've been given, or they're reading it with darkened eyes because the scriptures say with regard to eternity, there's only two options. There's no holding pattern. There's no intermediate state. You, you're not annihilated. No, you live on either in a place called hell or in a place called heaven. That's what God's word tells us about. And so to reject God's word on the subject is to make yourself, if I can coin a word, judgeable according to God's word because it speaks of heaven or hell. Now, some deny this. They don't take it seriously. They think the whole concept of hell, as I said, is foolishness. So I was reading just the other day of someone in this category. He's the president of the Philippines. And uh, forgive me if, I'm, if you're from the Philippines and I'm pronouncing his name wrong. It's President Duterte, I think, D-U-T-E-R-T-E. -E. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I mean, no disrespect. And I'm, and I'm not defaming the man. I'm simply going to tell you what he said in the public domain. President Duterte made this statement. He said, God, this is a direct quote, never created hell because if he created hell, he must be a stupid God. That's what he said. That's a serious statement. God is not stupid, but he is holy. And so hell is that place where unrepentant, unholy ones will reside throughout eternity. If President Duterte does not repent and respond to the truths he is denying, that's where he'll spend eternity. It's not because God is stupid. It's because God is holy. But God is not only holy, he's merciful. Therefore, he sent his only begotten son with a commandment for us to obey. And that commandment is to believe in Jesus as Savior and thus receive eternal life. The eternal life he, by the Father, has been authorized to give. I began to pray for the president of the Philippines. Why not? You see, he's still in darkness. I've been there, so have you. We've only been set free by the grace of God. But I think that's available for President Duterte and for all people. And I know Almighty God wants us to pray for them, 
for he desires for none to perish, but for all to be saved. So I want to ask you to stand to your feet now, and we're going to combine all of our efforts tonight to pray for the president of the Philistines. Uh, Philistines! <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> That's not good. The Philippines. I'm not targeting him in a negative sense. It's just his public statements of late that have aroused such attention. There are many like him, but since he's gone public, and I've mentioned to you what he stands for, we're not permitted to just be angry and disgusted. No, we should be moved to pray. I mean, but for the grace of God, what would our situation be? So I would like for us to pray for the president of the Philippines, but also I would like you to pray for the person whose name pops into your mind right where you are. For God desires for none, not that person or any other, to perish, but to come into eternal life through faith in Jesus, his son. That person you know is in the darkness, but Jesus is the light. He can pierce the darkness, so you'll want to pray for that person, darkened in his or her understanding that the light of Christ, the truth contained in Scripture, would soften that person's heart so that person would say to the God who came, come into my life and set me free. Free me from bondage to sin. Forgive my sin. Adopt me into your family. So pray both for the president of the Philippines and that one or two people who you're burdened about and have already begun to pray for. Please do so now and then I'll close. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for hearing our prayers. They were nonverbal, and yet you heard them. You're God. You have the capacity to do it. And though we were quiet as we approached you now, there was a time when you shouted out this truth, believe on me and be saved. That's our prayer for President Duterte and for the manifold others here who are on the hearts of the folks in this room. We pray, O oh God, that the good news message would go forth with such power and effectiveness that it would change their lives. Soften hearts which are presently hardened so that the ranks of believers worldwide would grow in this very, very challenging and unstable day. Thank you, O oh God, that though it looks like the prince of darkness is prevailing, this is not true. You remain high and lifted up, seated on the throne, and your plan of redemption is taking place without any distraction. Neither he nor anyone can get in the way. We thank you, O oh God, that you are far greater because your creator and the evil one, the prince of darkness, is simply a created being. We thank you, O oh God, that by your grace, we, most of us, 
I hope all of us have been moved from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And would you put it within us, oh God, not to be so enamored by the approval of mankind that we would be reluctant to publicly identify with you as you give us opportunities to do so. Even this week, and this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.